Welcome to the Squadcast Podcast. I'm Pam Musel, host of Art Heals All Wounds, a podcast featuring artists who are creating positive changes with their work. Squadcast is a cloud recording studio that empowers creators to record studio quality audio and video with anyone, anywhere, and at any time. I'm a member of the SquadPod, Squadcast's Slack channel dedicated to the podcast creator community. You're about to hear an episode of my podcast. It's an interview with Marcus Thompson, a sports writer for The Atlantic and former beat reporter for the Golden State Warriors. We talk about the stories that our favorite teams are telling us. Squadcast loves showing off interviews that are recorded on their software. And if you want an episode of your podcast to be played on this show, you can submit at squadcast.fm forward slash share. Let's get to my chat with Marcus Thompson. Enjoy. I live in Oakland, California, and I have a pet peeve. When I go to a concert in Oakland or Berkeley, And the band says, how you doing, San Francisco? Now, I've been accused of being petty to take offense, but guess what? I'm not alone. I've seen bands get booed and heckled for name-dropping San Francisco in the East Bay. I mean, San Francisco is the city, but Oakland is the town. And don't for a second think that people in Oakland think that the city means greater than. There's a lot of pride around being from the town. And I'm going to be really upfront that I, like many people in Oakland, am a transplant. So I'm very cautious about appropriating the use of the town. Because Oakland has a rich history and a vibrant culture that I'm just lucky to take part in. Does this mean I hate San Francisco? Not at all. I lived in San Francisco for 10 years, and I feel like I really became an adult there. But all the cities in the Bay Area, San Francisco, San Jose, Oakland, Berkeley, and all the other amazing places, it's almost like you need a passport to go from one to the other. They're just so culturally different with really unique histories. I wish I could adequately explain this dynamic between the city and the town. Instead, I found a really good storyteller who can't. Marcus Thompson is a sports writer who really opened my eyes about how listening to the story a sports team is telling you is a really good way to understand a place. Marcus Thompson II is a lead columnist for The Athletic, recently bought by the New York Times. He's been a prominent voice in the Bay Area sports scene, with both his 10 seasons of coverage of the Golden State Warriors and four years as a columnist. He's also written two best-selling books, a biography of Steph Curry and another of Kevin Durant. He's also a teacher at an art school, which is how I met him. I really didn't appreciate the way that sports and teams were telling stories and how significant those stories were until Marcus came on the show and told me the story of the sports teams in Oakland. If you're a sports fan, you probably know the big ones. For football, the Raiders, who used to be here. In baseball, we have the A's or the Athletics. And until fairly recently, 
Oakland hosted the games of the basketball team, the Golden State Warriors. If you, like me, are not a huge follower of sports, I really urge you to listen to this conversation with Marcus. You won't learn more about sports, but you'll learn a lot about how your sports teams reflect the cultural dynamics of your community. Hi, Marcus. Welcome to Art Heals All Wounds. Can you introduce yourself by telling us who you are and what you do? Well, hello. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Marcus Thompson. I am a sports columnist in the Bay Area who opine and report and featureize on Bay Area sports. Yes. And we met because we are colleagues at an art school. You also teach a class at an art school. So before we get started on getting a little bit of your background and your story, I wanted to have you on the podcast. And I think I told you this already, because when you came to your very first faculty meeting, you began your introduction by saying that you had major imposter syndrome, (laughs) which I... I was amazed. I've never heard anybody on their first meeting of their colleagues say that. And I thought to myself, this is a very honest and confident person because by any metric, you're incredibly successful. And I'm wondering, why did you say you had imposter syndrome on that first day? Do you remember? I I do. Uh, I still... I still feel it. You know, this was a room full of teachers, people who do this for, you know, this is their passion. This is their career. And I'm a sports writer who's essentially like a substitute teacher. (laughs) You know, that's how I feel like there's a hierarchy. And, you know, teachers, my my wife's a teacher. So I kind of see the real up close what she does. I don't do that. I don't do that at all. (laughs) Like all that she pours into it. That's another level. And I, and I definitely see at the end of the year, she's just flooded with all this stuff, all of this like appreciation and <sighs> gifts and all that, because, you know, teachers have such incredible impact. Yeah, I don't get anything out of the year. It's like, hey, man, that was good information. And, then, you know, <laughs> I'll see you down the line, maybe in the career, which to me is a sign that there's levels to this. No, but I don't get anything at the end of the year either. And I I don't know anybody who does. Really? I want to talk a little bit about your writing because you're a sports writer. And I'm wondering which came first for you, the sports or the writing? Or how did you become a sports writer? Well, it's definitely the sports first. Or at least I'll say this, the recognition. If sports is a passion and writing is a passion and somehow these two combine to become a career, like then I, I recognized sports as a passion first. Writing was a hobby that, you know, maybe because of my limited knowledge at the time, you just don't know is a thing to be into, you know. It was later on when people start telling me, hey, you're a good writer, right? I've been writing all of my life, but it just never was like the deal. It was like kind of doodling, <laughs> right? If somebody... Just because you doodle doesn't make you an artist, right? Or or your career is going to be in illustration. So it felt like that for me. It wasn't until later where it was like, no, you're really good at this. You should like lean in. But the sports was the sports was always there. I was I was an addict. <laughs> mm. 
Well, who told you to lean in or who were the people who were encouraging you to pursue writing? So it initially began when I was in high school. There was this guy named Michael Silver and he wrote for Sports Illustrated. And for some reason or another, he just was volunteering in our journalism class. Like, I have no idea why he was there. I see him now pretty frequently and I always joke with him like, man, tell the truth. You were you were arrested and this was like community service, right? <laughs> like, like it was just a random guy who just was helping out. He said, you know, he was from the area. He went to Cal and he wanted to give back. So he basically just contacted Oakland Tech. And said, you know, Fallon Journalism was like, I would like to come help. So he would come to our class and help us. And he first and foremost made the career seem something tangible to me. I always read the newspaper growing up, but it just never felt like something that I would do or could do. So he used to say, man, you're really good. Like you can, like you can do this. So I was like, what, really? Okay. And then I'm like, what, 16, 15. So, you know, that was gravy. I was eating all that praise up. Right. So then I went to college and even at the time I still didn't really grasp like, Hey, you should be a sports writer. I went to college. My intention was to major in architecture, but I ended up changing the school I was going to. And I got there and I found out they didn't have architecture as a major. They had like this five-year program and I was like, I'm not staying here for five years. I don't want to do that, which was like dumb because I could, at the end of it, you get like a master's, right? But it didn't sound appealing to me. So I was like, I'm choosing a different major. And I looked on the list and saw journalism and I remembered high school and I was like, that was fun. Let's do that. So then I get in there and I'm all nervous because, you know, now this is college journalism, right? So I'm thinking I was at the little high school paper. And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be so much harder. I'm, I'm just going to try it, but I don't know if this is going to work. They, they're probably so much better than me. And I wrote one article and they were like, yo, can you be the sports editor? Like, you're, you're like the best we ever had. And I was like, what? <laughs> so at that point, my ego it was completely inflated. <laughs> and I felt like I was the greatest journalist of all time. So that's when it became, okay, this is my career because – they told me like they were they were amazed at my first articles like, you know, this is incredible. Like you can do this. You should be the editor. And I was like, wow. oh, OK, maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll do it. Well, so I do have to go back because I have two children. They're adults now. They both love to write. But I yeah. know among their peers, that was very unusual. So I am still wondering about this young kid, teenager, who loves to write. A lot of kids and teenagers, when they get a writing assignment, it's like you're punishing them. Yeah, it's torment, right? Absolutely. And I see why it is as a professional. But at the time, like I used to, I loved writing. I used to write poems like crazy. I used to always wow. write poems. I wrote poems to my mother. So when I was young, I always took pride in the fact that, like, I knew words. Like, I was a dude who, if I didn't get 100 on the spelling contest, like, you know, when the vocabulary thing came out, like, that was me. I liked the use of words. You know how when, back in the day, parent, adults would be around children and they wanted to say something, so they would spell it out instead of saying it. And I, oh, man, one of my great joys as a child was was letting them know that I know what you just spelled, right? Like you can't pull this on me. So I, I always had this kind of 
fascination with words and like to flex that ability. So being able to write poems, writing things and people, how they responded to me because of it, it was fun, man. I loved it. I used to write, they used to put my little poems in the church bulletin or like my uncle has a bunch of them. I used to write poems to my mom, right? If I liked a girl, I would write a poem and never give it to her, you know? So that that's kind of, it began as that. That's what I'm saying. It wasn't real. It wasn't like, this is my career. It was just something I did. And this is going to be a funny way off the cuff story, but it's real life. It's my life. I got a first inkling, you know, I'm doing this um, journalism thing at the high school, but it's just fun. Like I just really want to write about the basketball team and the football team. Right. Cause they're all my friends. But so my father, he went to prison for a couple of months and he came back and he was telling me about how he had, you know, he used to put money, he used to get commissary money by writing letters to people like writing letters for people in prison. So somebody wanted to write a letter to their girl. My dad was like this 70s kind of player. He knew how to talk, right? So he would write this, he would write their letters for them. And so at that point it was like, so this might be the family business right here. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I just remember thinking, you don't know if this stuff is like genetic, but that's where I kind of understood it as a talent. Where it's like, oh, wow, that's interesting that you do that. Right. You know, I write this stuff and and like we never he never told me to write poems or anything. It wasn't like he was like, hey, let me show you Langston Hughes. So you can learn. It wasn't like that at all. It's these completely separate things. And I would do that. Like I would write love letters and poems. And then I find out my dad does it, too. And I was like, okay, so maybe this isn't just like some throwaway hobby. Maybe it is an actual talent and ability to communicate, to transmit thought right to understand enough to share with people that I, i'll never forget that because i was so impressed with him i was like look at you daddy you think you me <laughs> <laughs> that's an amazing story well so until i started prepping here for our interview i didn't realize you'd grown up in oakland oh yes ma'am i'm not an oakland native but from what i know of sports in oakland I would almost say that it is a heartbreak story in a certain way. Am I wrong? No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. I I do think the sports story of Oakland mimics the story of Oakland. Mm. I remember we had this conversation and, and, and and I was telling you how much I believe that like sport is art imitating life and we gravitate towards it because this thing is such a vivid metaphor of life, right? And you could see that parallel in the teams. You can see that, the struggle, the heartbreak, how rough it is. And of course, people would gravitate to the bad team trying to get better, right? Trying to make it, trying to compete with the great teams because it's a metaphor of like coming from poverty and trying to make it and competing. Like, So to me, all that stuff is benounced or unbenounced, like symbolic, right? Even if we don't know that's what we're doing, it's a draw. So to me, like the Raiders and the A's and their persona and their personality, it like mimics and vibes with the team, which is like an amazing phenomenon considering in 99% of the cases, the people on the team are not from the area, right? right? But in the situations where the marriage is so great, somehow the personalities 
of the players match the city. Like if you're in Pittsburgh and you play for the Steelers, like you're automatically just tough, right? That's the that's the blue collar kind of and no matter where you're from, you kind of have to embody that and the city response to that. So I do think that that was definitely true in Oakland. Like so much heartbreak and defeat and losses and getting back up and enjoying like appreciating the little things and, the you know, so to me, it, it is a mirror of heartbreak <laughs> and overcoming heartbreak uh, and not yeah. being defeated by heartbreak. Right. That is so interesting. Well, the other thing too, is that I know that you wrote for the Warriors, I think exclusively for 10 years. Is that true? Yeah. I was a ten, beat writer for 10 years. Yep. Okay. So I have to ask you about your take on the story of the Warriors. Cause for me, there's heartbreak there too, but in a different way. So I won't, I won't tell you until you tell me your take on the story of the Warriors. You mean they're moving? Everything. So I do I do think there's an automatic connection between basketball and Oakland. I think that's more about the area's love of hoop, right? And the Warriors were kind of the embodiment of that. It, it was weird because the collegiate basketball teams don't get the same attention or fervor. They do when they're good, but somehow the Warriors just became the represent the kind of grassroots basketball love of the city. Uh, and I, and I do think that built the culture of the Warriors, right? It was that it was, you know, basketball and Oakland as it is in many inner city neighborhoods, especially after the great migration, basketball is very cheap. It's affordable, it's accessible, but it's also communal. There isn't always like hierarchy and everybody can participate and it's not, size restrictive or cost restrictive or even gender restrictive, right? Like, so I remember growing up playing hoop and it's just, there's people out there playing, there's people out there watching, there's people out there for the vibe. And then you go all over to these places and it's just really communal. And that's kind of what the Warriors were built on, the the brand of the Warriors. These kind of community events centered around basketball where you can go to the neighborhood and you go to a Warriors game and you see the whole neighborhood, right? You see all of Oakland, you see the diversity, right? You see the the kind of spirit and you get to watch basketball, right? So to me, it was built on that. And I do think the success the Warriors had and their love of the area was because they, they like that vibe. Like they feel it. Um, I'd never forget growing. I wrote about this when they left Oracle. One of my favorite stories, um, when he was a beat writer, you, we were sitting down low and, you know, you're watching the game, you're writing, but man, I had to like move my seat back because invariably every game I would run into somebody who I knew and they would want to stop and talk to me. And I'm like, like, I'm working here, but they're like, Hey, Marcus, what's up? How's your dad doing? I'm like, ah, oh, you know, but you can't brush them off like that's basically family right so but it always happened they're like they will stop and talk and then the other media is mad at me right because they're like hey can you can your friend move right <laughs> so but that that's what it was you, you were just in this space where it was just community and i do think the warriors kind of built off that it was a very grassroots community uh momentum that kind of reciprocates our love for basketball and when they move, that's the one thing I don't think they understood. When they figured when they moved, oh, it's just right over here. 
it's just over here. It's not far. You still have access, but the spirit is different. The motives are different. And it's something that's very tangible. I don't know if that means it's going to be worse. You know, it could be better. It could be different. But what was in Oakland was very unique to Oakland and the East Bay and the spirit. And that just can't exist in that $2 million luxury item in San Francisco. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because when I think of the Warriors, I do think of this idea of a team whose fans stuck with them when they were not a winning team and just really boosted them up. And then once they became that winning team, they left. And I've been trying to think of like a movie or novel or something that that coincides with. (laughs) But And I'm not a sports fanatic at all, but for me, there's a bitterness there because I feel like there's a lot of taking from Oakland. Yeah. That Oakland grows a lot of things and then... The Warriors is a great example of something that they grew being taken. Yeah, it's it's difficult to the people who run that. I don't even really think it, they're being malicious about it. I don't think it's a a kidnapping. It's just a inability to understand because it's a culture that they just aren't a part of. Right? They just don't see it as taking they see it as like we're literally moving seven miles right (laughs) across the water but i know this for a fact the players love that element of you were with us when we weren't good and you were down with us while we were on our come up and we respect that we respect that a lot more than the people who now see us as the cool thing and want to get on and if you know anything about most professional NBA players, which, you know, or most most professional players, like in general, like all of them have dealt with that journey of starting at the bottom and having to climb to their professional level, right? And they all have this in their life where who was there at the beginning and who got there when they made it. So they all kind of have to deal with that and they can spot it, they can witness it, they can feel it. So they know, they know who's there because they're celebrities and they're famous and they're in the NBA and they know the people who are more about being proud of that because they were there before it was there, before they reached that level. So the players loved Oakland. They loved, they hung out with the people there, right? They built relationships with them. They made sure to be tangible. So I think they're trying to figure out how to do that now with a vastly different crowd. It's just... And I don't, again, I'm not saying they can't have success in that environment. They absolutely can, right? Like <laughs> wealth can accomplish a lot, right? So, right. but it's just noticeably different. And the people who experienced it before uh, definitely have a hard time with that transition. It's not as simple as the people who made the decision think it is. Right. I mean, I think a lot of people don't know this, right? But just the inner understanding the 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 intra dynamics of the Bay Area, like that's not a simple move. Like you take out all this other stuff, there's just a natural brotherly rivalry between Oakland and San Francisco. That's there. If you hear, you kind of understand that. It, you know, you spend especially if you spend time on the East Bay. Like we have that complex about this major metropolis across the water that's celebrated 
far more than the one on on the East Bay, right? So right. just that dynamic alone is enough to know that that, w- that would be heartbreaking. Well, I, I was just going to say, like, the flavors of the city, the cities in the Bay Area. I've lived in Berkeley. I've lived in San Francisco. I've lived in Oakland. I live in Oakland now. They're so different. And so, you know, if you live in Oakland, it's like someone says, oh, you want to come over and have a burger or something? And you come over and they set down this bowl of ice cream in front of you, which I'll call San Francisco. (laughs) And you're like, but wait, I'm hungry. I want dinner. And you're like, well, it's food. You know, it's. And it's good, too. Right. It's food and it's good, but it's It's not good. But maybe your body really needs that burger, not a bowl of ice cream. I don't know. I don't know. This is something my partner and I used to talk about a lot because he lived in San Francisco when we first got together. And I'm sort of rabidly pro East Bay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Even though I did live in San Francisco, but I love the East Bay. Do you still live in Oakland? Oh, yeah. I still live in Oakland, right in West Oakland. Uh, I think the difficulty, I think the difficulty that people from the East Bay have is like this almost like uh, dismissiveness of our perception about it, right? You know, to say something like, oh, we're just moving over here. Why are you making a big deal about it, right? Like, to me, I think that was was the misstep. I mean, if we're being completely honest about it, like the thing that we cherished about the Warriors in Oakland had been gone. Like, the people had been priced out. The crowd had been changed, right? So if their stance was, yes, man, we appreciate Oakland. We appreciated what it brought. We need a different lane, right? We need a more upscale lane. We need a more affluent lane. We need a more luxury lane because that's how we're going to survive as sports. And just say, hey, I appreciate this, but I'm giving it up. I think the, the difficult part for the people on our side of it is to act like it's just going to be the same, right? You know, like, hey, no, it's, it, yeah, we're just moving the same thing we had down the way, right? Which in addition to saying essentially what you offered wasn't enough anymore, it also is gaslighting, right? It also plays this yeah. double sword action of we're taking, yeah, we're moving because you really aren't good enough anymore. You were good for where we were, but where we're going, you're not good enough. And also, yeah, we're gonna try to we're gonna try to make you think this is pretty much the same thing. Like to me, that right. was the misstep. And then they do the thing where it's like, oh, we're gonna wear the Warriors jersey. We're going to wear Oakland now just to show you we're still a part of it. We're still there. And it's, to me, it was that was the extra layer. And I, I think it's okay to say, I like what San Francisco offers. Like, that's perfectly fine. I like, I like, you know, I drive around Knob Hill in awe, right? Like, I'm like, yo, like, it's a thing. I'm sure if I had the money, I'd probably do it too. I'd probably, live, you know, but that's fine. These are two different cultures, two different worlds. And, and I think both of them are acceptable. But to me, the difficulty is saying, ah, it's the same. We're just gonna, to me, that's like, come on, man. Just can just, just acknowledge what we have here. Just acknowledge the uniqueness, acknowledge the, uh, what it did for you. And then be, be upfront about like, that's not good enough anymore. Right. But you know, what you're saying is such a metaphor for, Oakland 
in so many ways in terms of gentrification, in terms of the rising cost of living here, in terms of the shifting demographics. It's like there is a change there that is incredibly uncomfortable. I live in West Oakland. I live like two sizable blocks from a climate's high. And yeah. like I see people coming to move in these these condos and these fancy condos, right? And and I get it, man. You spent your money. You want a particular lifestyle. Like I understand, but you can definitely tell they just have no desire to be part of the community they're in. Like at no. all. Right. Yeah. As a matter of fact, like shield me, let me carve out this this nice little luxury and exclusive and secluded space inside the community right right with and, with a gated yeah. courtyard <laughs> right yes. absolutely like or, and then, and then the, the gated garage where you yeah. drive into so you and never have to like when people are out doing their thing like around this community and we don't like that we don't like the look of that we don't like the sound of that right so you literally yeah. moved inside a community where this is part of the culture of the community and not only do you segment yourself off, but you also now start taking down some of these cultural elements, right? Like to me, that's like that's the part that's like, geez, like if you're gonna move, that's fine. Move here. I'm not saying don't don't bring your money, don't like park yeah, park your car, but you know, shop at the local store, like meet the people, right? Like, you right. know, go to the high school and play hoop, right? Be a part of the community, right? Instead of right being isolated yeah. from the community that's a to me that will make what's happening a bit more palatable <laughs> right 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 because right now it's a bit like colonialism you go you yeah. know you go to a place and it's not that you're moving there because you love that culture you're going to go there and you want to take your culture from suburbia or wherever it was that you felt comfortable into that it's a place planet. yeah 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 absolutely. And there are people here who understand that that's not the way, right? There are people here who understand, who like just love Oakland and it's like, yeah, I kind of want to be a part of that, right? I'm right. going to leave suburbia to be a part of what's happening here. I just don't know if there's enough, <laughs> <laughs> right? But there, the, you meet those people who are like, no, let's preserve what we have. Like, and And the great part about Oakland, which has always been the case, is man, as long as that's your mindset, you are welcomed. I remember going to Oakland Tech. I remember going to Oakland Tech not knowing that the rest of the world was so different. When I went to school, I went to a black college. I was stunned at the sight of all black people. It was jarring. And I went to school in Oakland, right? I, it, I, you just didn't know how everything was there. We never thought about these. I mean, it was obviously predominantly white, but there were black kids, there were Africans, right? There were Mexicans. We just had everything and it was so normal for our culture that it was literally jarring to see something different. And that's why I'm like, oh, yeah, we do kind of do it differently. If you just come and you want to be in on it and you part of it, like you are always accepted out here. Yeah, that's the East Bay way. That's Absolutely. what I say. No question. That is the East Bay way. That's yeah. The East Bay way. Yep. You know, I could talk to you about this all day, but I did have one question about your teaching most of our students, a fair number of our students in our department are athletes. And I would wager that the majority of your students in your class are athletes. Yep. And I am so curious. We're in a department that really emphasizes storytelling. 
a lot of our students that we teach have dreams of continuing in sports. And we know that that's a really hard path. But what do you think is the value for these young athletes to learn the art of storytelling? The thing about sports is they live the stories out before they actually live them out in life. Like that Mm. to me, that's the art of sports is that you create these like real time scenarios that require the creativity and thought and and improvisation to to get through. Right. And and now they create a baseline for you when you go through it in, in real life. Right. We all can understand this idea of a small person going to compete with a big person and winning. Like we all get it. Like the tortoise and the hare is a race. That's sports, right? Like, (laughs) so to me, the the beauty of sports is sometimes in our lives, these things happen in periods, right? Like the adversity comes at a time and then you have to deal with it, right? Maybe your parents split or maybe you lose a job. These things are like periods in our life, but they aren't consistent where sports just creates them all the time, right? It's like, okay, we're trailing in the fourth quarter now and I'm exhausted. (laughs) I'm tired. (laughs) Like, what do we do? Right? Like you just keep doing it. You keep throwing in these random situations with all these various contexts. Right. Then you start throwing in like the interdynamics of, I have a teammate, I have a coach where we're 15 guys in football. It's 53 guys who have to somehow move as one and they spend all this time together. And how do you figure that out? Right. So now when they get into whatever profession they're in, right? Like they're usually able to handle it, especially women athletes. They, they get all this practice at the very natures of adversity and competition. And then they have to go vie in a world that's kind of against them, right? So they're like, man, this is what I've been doing, right? This is what I've been against. That's why they do so well. When they they graduate, they do so well because they've had a thousand opportunities to practice it, right? So to me, that's what makes sports great. And, And the ability to find those threads and share them with people, like they almost have a front row seat to it. So to me, once they learn that, once they learn how to tell stories, identify the stories, right? One of the things we do is we look at the storyline, like what was the case in 1908 with Jack Johnson? Like how are the storylines developed? And what is the case now when it's, you know, picking now it's Deshaun Watson, right? Like the villain athlete who behaves in a way that now becomes representation for all black people, right? <laughs> it's like, okay, right. this guy's like this. Now this is a symbol of how black people act. And Deshaun Watson does this. So, okay, we told you they were hypersexualized, right? And how, oh my God. so these themes, so now you can recognize them. You could spot them because you see how it plays out. And if you could spot them, you can point out that what's happening, but you can also do your best to counter them, right? And, that, and now we're seeing athletes kind of take control of their narrative, take their own platforms. So if they understand how to tell stories as effectively as we tell stories, they can put a competing story out there, right? Like you can literally line up. And, and if I'm good at it, I have the goods. I have all of the details, right? I'm trying to get information from them. They already have the information, right? So if right. they know how to tell the story, as well as me, 
then they can run that story and now defeat this this notion of what is being peddled. So to me, it's hugely vital. And then you throw in the branding element, the market element, all that stuff that they have to do as athletes to build themselves. I mean, think about it. To get to this college, to make the team, they have to brand themselves, right? If they want to, they have to. You know, they're putting together tapes and social media, and and, and they've, they're presenting themselves as these worthy young people like i'm different i'm participating in this I, they've already been branding themselves right so now how do i do that and put it into a space where i can be an expert at this in a way that changes narrative to me it's huge it's that's why all athletes no matter the level it's great they're just in position to really get the practice at what we do normally that's amazing i've never thought of it that way that's so cool well, Marcus, if people want to follow your work, where should they look? I work right for The Athletic, which was recently bought by The New York Times. So cool. You can subscribe I guess, to maybe. The Athletic. To re- no, it was good. I'll take it. Oh, good, good. <laughs> you can find me there. You can find me at The New York Times. Uh, you can find me on all social media at Thompson Scribe. Or you can just, you know, Google me and say hello. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. I've learned so much. Thank you. I'm glad we did it. I hope I didn't sound too much like an art imposter. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you are an imposter. I think that you are the real deal. I appreciate that very much. You're listening to Art Heals All Wounds. so much to Marcus Thompson for coming on the podcast and really teaching me something I never realized before. From now on, I'll never underestimate the power of sports to reflect the lives of the communities around them or the power of a good sports writer to translate that message into a good story. If you want to learn more about Marcus, you can Google him and come up with so many columns and articles that he's written. You can also find him on Twitter and Instagram at Thompson Scribe. And now you can read him in the New York Times, too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Art Heals All Wounds. If you want to support this podcast, the best ways are to follow it on whatever app you listen on and to share it with a friend who you think would enjoy this show. The music you've heard in this podcast is by Ketza and Lobo Loco. This podcast was edited by Eva Hristova. Art Heals All Wounds comes to you from Oakland, California, on unceded territory of the Chokenyo Ohlone people.